0: Welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say. My name's Adrian Goldberg. In this episode, after Boris Johnson announced his intention to break international law by reneging on his Brexit deal with the EU, can the government reasonably expect citizens to respect its laws over lockdown? We'll hear from the good people of Birmingham, which is facing some of the strictest Covid rules in the country plus the millions of pounds of taxpayer's cash handed out for coronavirus protective equipment to a dormant company. We hope that if you enjoy listening to this podcast, you'll think about subscribing to the Byline Times. There's no big media mogul behind us, which means that we can speak truth to power, but we rely on your subscriptions to fund our online journalism and our monthly newspaper. So go on, be a good egg. Subscribe now at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Now, Byline Times journalist Sam Bright has led the way with a series of scoops in the last few weeks which have revealed some strange practices in the commissioning of contracts for personal protective equipment, or PPE, by the government. One firm has been awarded more than £50 million worth of work despite being dormant. While another PPE contractor normally specialises in digital marketing. A contract worth £122 million for medical gowns was handed to a company which had only been in existence for 44 days and whose directors had no obvious experience in this area. All very curious. I went to meet Sam at the Byline Times offices near London Bridge and asked him how he'd been alerted to the story.
1: Well, I'd seen that this was a, di- this was a story that was energising a lot of people, and particularly online. Prior to joining Byline, I'd seen a few stories floating about and particularly saw that the Good Law project run by Jolene Maugham had taken issue with some of these contracts that the government had, had presented and saw, after searching the government contracts website, really, that these deals were getting released on almost a daily basis and that it needed someone to be forensic and really go through them and uncover exactly what was going on in each and every contract as much as is humanely possible with £5 billion worth of of PP PP procurement deals.
0: So... In essence, all the information was out there about the various PPE deals that the government was offering, but you had to drill down into the fine detail, wade through a lot of boring stuff mm. to get to what really mattered.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and this is one of the perplexing things with the this story, is that it's got all the classic elements of a great story. It's got money, it's got the government not necessarily spending taxpayers' money in the way that taxpayers would want. It's got a lack of transparency. It's all conducted in the shadows, big business, dormant firms. And yet, Byline Times and a couple of other publications seem to be the only the only groups interested in covering this story, which I think says something about our media and our political climate as a as a whole. If, for example, this was a Labour government spending hundreds of millions of pounds on contracts given to its mates. I'm sure that Guido Fawkes and the Taxpayers Alliance will be up in arms about um, these deals, but they've been um, suspiciously quiet on this front.
0: Let's go through each exclusive one by one. The first one on the 25th of August. Government awards £8.4 million in PPE procurement contracts to a dormant firm.
1: Yeah, so this is one that we've that has been running for a few weeks, actually. I think it was either last week or the week before the government announced that it had also granted a forty two million pound contract to the same firm, might be a bit more than forty two million and um, taking the total up to to fifty fifty two million to a dormant firm as a whole uh, the, the again, the bizarre thing with this story is that. The companies largely exist on paper, or lots of them exist on paper. So I can Google the name of this company. I can Google the name of its owner, and I struggle to find any information out there on the internet about either. The firm I believe was set up in 2016 and doesn't appear to have traded since its inception. That its, its amount of assets still stands at 100,000 um, pounds, which is the amount of share capital that was allocated. To the firm when it first set up and yet somehow for some reason it has been granted a 52 million pound contract now it may be the case that this is all above board and it delivered the equipment that it promised but the question here is over public transparency we don't know that the government has not released the details of this contract we don't know that this contract was successful. We don't know why the government picked this firm in particular. And so we're all in the dark here. And as journalists, we it's our duty to get to the bottom of that.
0: So this is a company called TAEG Energy. So you've run two stories, two exclusives on that. One on the 25th of August, one on the 2nd of September. As you say, the second one, I think, was for £43.8 million. In both cases, adding up to... More than £52 million, pounds, the government awarding contracts for personal protective equipment to a dormant company. What do we know about what happened next?
1: In terms of what happened next, as I say, we, we don't know. There may be more contracts in the pipeline. The thing is with these contracts is that as they're released, they don't follow logic, <laughs> as I would see it. So it's not as though these contracts ran for a certain period of time and now there's a statutory limit that means that they have to be released now. So April's contracts released on the government portal in August, for example, and then May's contracts released in September. It doesn't run like that. The government picks and chooses when exactly it wants to release details of this contract, these contracts. So it could be in back in March the this company was granted a contract. And the government may choose to release information about that contract next week, next month. Who knows? It's up to the government. It's in the government's hands. Which
0: goes back to the point that you made about transparency. What have the government said about the awarding of such a significant sum of money to a dormant company?
1: <laughs> well I, I find it I find it interesting that they are at pains to stress that ministers were not involved in the awarding of these contracts, that it was officials. And then they go on to say that due diligence was done on all these contracts and that the relevant boxes were ticked, and that any contract that didn't deliver, the government is able to get its money back. Although when I then asked the government to tell me exactly how many times they had used that clause, um, they declined to comment. So I'm not quite sure how effective this clause in the contracts has been, which in theory gives the government the ability to recoup money for Duff products. It seems that, uh, And it seems this has happened on a, on a couple of occasions as well. As many listeners may be aware, the, um, the government granted a, a huge uh, £250 million contract to a company called Ayanda Capital Limited, who claimed that they delivered what the government asked for um i think that's that's um quite uh, important to stress but legal documents show that 150 million pounds worth of stock it was i believe it was face masks are unable to be used in the NHS <laughs> and a further 100 million pounds of face masks were still undergoing tests at the beginning of August. So it's not as though we're drumming up conspiracy theories here. There is proof that some of these contracts haven't delivered what the government wanted.
0: And people may recall planning for the original possible no-deal Brexit when the government awarded a contract to a ferry company who had never sailed any boats. And it's, it's kind of an air of mystery, of it has to be said, suspicion around the awarding of some of these contracts. Now, that's not to say that anything is untoward, but again, we come back to this thing of clarity, of transparency.
1: No, precisely. And in this case, Chris Grayling isn't in charge, but I'm sure plenty of other government officials and ministers are capable of um, of messing up in this way. And I think we all understand that in an emergency, for one, the government needed to procure equipment quickly. We all understand that. We also understand that people are human, they make mistakes, they make errors. All that we ask, I feel, as a minimum, as taxpayers, is that we know where our pennies and pounds are going, into whose pockets. Did it deliver the thing that we're asking for, especially during a pandemic, especially when people's lives are at stake here?
0: Oh, you're so fussy, aren't you? (laughs) Uh, uh,
1: And in amongst this as well, there was
0: the story on the 1st of September, another exclusive. Government spends £364 million on protective coveralls. Just 432,000 protective coveralls were delivered, working out at £840 per bodysuit. What more can you tell me about that
1: story? Oh god, this is this just <laughs> makes me despair. I mean, as far as we're aware, these bodysuits were not manufactured by Gucci or Armani. So, I'm not sure where the 800 pounds of bodysuit tag comes from. And what were they to be used for? I'm not I'm not quite sure. I mean, these are sort of quite high grade bodysuits. So, it's the sort of thing that you'd see on CSI um, in crime scenes where they're cleaning up or forensics are going in to sort of get fingerprints and that sort of thing. So you'd imagine some sort of high-grade cleanup operation related to coronavirus. Additional things that I can tell you about this story are that £20 million worth of contracts for coveralls were granted to a small digital marketing agency based in Hammersmith. And now I've scoured through the the, um, the website of this company and have yet to find any reference on their in relation to ppe procurement that it's one of their things that they offer they offer uh, search engine optimization they offer digital advertising in case uh, anybody would be interested in, in procuring the services for those things but in terms of producing coveralls and i've emailed and called this company on multiple occasions um and haven't haven't got any um, haven't got any further on it. Um, so that's another that's another strange one that I would like to be explained by somebody at some point. Who knows when that might be? When the inquiry happens, perhaps. And the biggest provider of coveralls for the government has been a firm linked to an evangelical Christian sect. And Ballantines has managed to reveal that in total, this evangelical sect, the Exclusive Brethren and firms tied to the sect have won contracts worth more than half a billion pounds. The church maintains that none of the the businesses have nothing to do with the operation of the church, but it does seem a quite bizarre coincidence, especially because this firm has quite a a prodigious lobbying operation in the UK, or at least it has on certain subjects in the past, that it has been granted so many contracts.
0: And people will understand, as you say, that the government has had to order some of this protective equipment in quite a hurry, that perhaps there isn't the the leisure that there might be for the ordering of other equipment at other times. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that this has gone on in this place, but because of the speed with which the ordering has had to go on, there might be a suspicion that on some occasions people would be bidding for these contracts, perhaps without the expertise to manufacture them, but hoping to subcontract them elsewhere they're not people who necessarily know this business inside out
1: exactly and that's why really i wanted an answer to the government's question about the clause in these contracts allowing for the government to recoup its money because you have you could have a situation where the government's hedging a lot of bets and it's granting contracts and hoping that these companies that maybe have not a great deal of experience can project manage um, supply chains across the world better than the government can, and can supply the equipment that it needs. But in case they don't, the government has something built in to the contracts that allows them to uh, to recoup the taxpayers' money. But the government again has been slippery about this in the in the natural affair of things with Boris Johnson's government. It doesn't want to talk to the media; it wants to conduct its operation in in secrecy as much as it as it possibly can, and we're none the wiser. So it's a basic question of. Do
0: we, as taxpayers, know if our money has been wisely spent? Have we got what we paid for? And the truth is, at the moment, we just don't know.
1: Exactly, and that's why it requires further exploration. I mean, the bombshell, in a sense, is the contracts that are potentially been awarded to friends of the Conservative Party, which amount to over £100 million it's been calculated. There have been contracts handed to Conservative councillors, to people who've worked on general election campaigns, even a company owned by the person who wrote the 2019 Conservative Party manifesto. And that I was thinking about it the other day, and what, what if we saw a third-world country whose regime was handing government contracts worth hundreds of million pounds to pals of the regime. How would that be written up in the media? You know, we, we'd have a whole large degree of snobbery towards that, of, oh, the British would never do that, we're exceptional, we've got democratic standards that are far and away superior to these countries. And yet, that's exactly the picture that we're seeing in the UK um, on coronavirus. And look, like, everyone wants to... <laughs> There is a tendency, of course, in business to rely on people who you can trust. But when it's the government, it's a different order of magnitude. And when the government has the ability to to grant contracts worth hundreds of millions of pounds, there needs to be questions about due diligence and who exactly won these contracts and why.
0: Now, I don't think you should underplay your role in getting this story, Sam, because quite a lot of very good stories are, if you like, hidden in plain sight. They're waiting for somebody to join the dots and say, aha, so this means this. And I think you've done some fantastic journalism to dig out these stories. But as you say, the information was out there. It was there for the digging for any other journalist who was interested in this area. Having dug it out, have you found that other media have picked up on it and run with it, given the sums of money that we're talking about?
1: Well, it was quite—it um, uh, was quite a funny experience because one of the contracts, which isn't a PP-related contract, but is a coronavirus-related contract, which was the three million pounds of communications spending awarded to Top and Guerin who ran the Conservatives' social media operation at the 2019 general election. We exposed that story, and then two weeks later, The Guardian, in association with Open Democracy, who, you know, at Byline were, were big fans of both those publications, they um, ran exactly the same story with one or two added bits of colour, shall we say, um, to then justify their story. So it, it, has, it has clearly piqued the interest of certain publications, but I'm still surprised by the lack of clamour to expose these stories given the amount of traction we're seeing on our website from people on social media who really want to read about these who really want to read about these stories I'm still a bit baffled by that I wonder whether people think that it's some sort of conspiracy theory because when you're talking about government spending and dormant firms and you can't quite get to the nub of what's going on Um, which we openly admit, I wonder whether people think that this shouldn't be put into the public domain for one reason or another, or they're a bit nervous about doing so. Whereas it's my attitude and our attitude that this is well within the public interest. And I'm glad to say that thousands of people agree.
0: And at least one MP has taken up the
1: story as well and asked questions of the government. Yes. Yeah, so last week at, P- at Prime Minister's questions, Rushanara Ali, MP, um, who's a Labour MP in London, she posed this to the Prime Minister asking, uh, where had the money gone, Prime Minister, in relation to these PPE procurement deals, which amount to £5 billion? And the Prime Minister invited Roshanara to send him a letter um, detailing the contracts that she was concerned about.
0: Just send him a link to the byline times. Well, exactly. he, could, he could
1: buy a subscription. I think he could afford it. <laughs> Maybe we should send one to Ten Down the Street. I wonder what Dominic Cummings would think of that. But we got in contact with Russian hour off the back of that and did exactly that. We we sent her to the links to our website and she released her letter that she sent to the Prime Minister over the weekend. And I'm glad to say that a couple of our pieces made it into the letter. So we'll be very interested to hear the Prime Minister's response and we'll make sure to publish it on the Byline Times website. It's well, definitely worth keeping an eye on the Byline Times uh, website for that reason.
0: Uh, before we finish, Sam, just tell me a little bit about yourself because here we are talking in central London at the Byline Times offices in sight of these great monoliths of capitalism, these great London landmarks like the Shard and the Walkie Talkie over there. But that's very different from where you grew up.
1: Yeah, so I grew up in Huddersfield, which is a town in in West Yorkshire, the heart of Brexit land, whose most notable achievements are being the birthplace of Harold Wilson, rugby league and Huddersfield Town Football Club. So, yeah, it was a very different experience um for me growing up. I um I went to London once, I visited London once before the age of 20, I think, and that was when I was a very small child and I kicked and screamed all the way around because I hadn't been fed and um, my feet were getting getting tired. And I've got to say, it's not that much different now, Adrian. <laughs> um, but no, um, I, was, I was very fortunate um, to get work experience, a work experience opportunity at the BBC when I'd graduated university and since then have found some great editors who've allowed me to work... Remotely at times from my home, my hometown, and which has really helped me. And I, I really hope coronavirus spurs a new form of journalism and working in general. I mean, it's not just journalism that's dominated by London. It's you know banking, it's law, and you know big business exists in the capital. And I hope that coronavirus allows people outside of the all-encompassing capital to um, have a few more opportunities one of the great joys for me of working for byline
0: times is that i can do that from from my home in birmingham and i just think it's so important that voices like ours yours of west yorkshire mine of the west midlands are heard on national media because even now even now there is a prejudice i think against uh, regional accents and and regional inputs Uh, you, you got into this game by starting your own blog from Huddersfield?
1: Yeah, I did. I did. Um, I started a website when I was 18 years old called Backbench, which is an open platform political blog, which is still in existence today. For if anybody wants to check it out and potentially write a a story. So yeah, I set that up just before I went to university, and I think uh, this is the beauty of online media that you can start something up at relatively low cost, and then if it's good enough. There are people online, on social media, who will read it and who will pay attention. And, yeah, that's, that's the, since setting up Backbench, and um, this has kind of been my course in life. I've never wanted to do anything else.
0: Sam Bright, and you can follow Sam's exclusives on the Byline Times website. And to support his journalism and much more like it, please subscribe to our monthly paper. More details at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Com. Now, as you'll almost certainly be aware, the government recently announced its willingness to break international law, quotes, in a specific and limited way, by drafting the Internal Market Bill, which gives the UK the power to unilaterally rewrite part of the withdrawal agreement with the EU. The government insists this is necessary to protect Northern Ireland's position as an integral part of the country. But at a time when coronavirus means we're all expected to obey restrictions on our behaviour for the public good, has the government given licence to the rule breakers within our own communities? Can they really expect us to follow the law when, in a specific and limited way, they are willing to disregard it? To find out, I've been speaking to people in my home city of Birmingham, where the national rule of six limiting social gatherings has been extended to include a ban on any visitors from outside your immediate family to your home or garden. So, Madam, here we are in Birmingham, which has got some of the strictest COVID lockdown rules in the country. Mm. And we have a government that said it's willing to break the law, international law, over the EU. What do you think of that?
2: (laughs) I think the whole thing's a shambles, isn't it? Up is now down, and down is now up. I think one of the the most ridiculous things I've got on my plate at the moment is my nine-year-old daughter turns ten next week. She was just going to have a small gathering of her and her classmates, in her little bubble, that she'll be sitting with all day on Friday. But they can't come back to our house and make pizzas. It's utterly ludicrous. But but yeah, it's fine to go and break international law. Yes, <laughs> the whole thing is insane.
0: So your nine-year-old. Yep and hang out with her classmates at school at school but the same classmates are not allowed under the Birmingham lockdown regulations to come to your house and celebrate a birthday
2: that's correct isn't that ridiculous but there you go <laughs> so so i can
0: see that you're very concerned about covid you've got your blue mask yeah. on you yeah. can see your glasses steaming up <laughs> and i'm just wonder how you feel living in lockdown Birmingham, which has got some of the most draconian restrictions of any part of the country because of Covid at a time when the government has admitted that it is breaking the law. What do you feel?
3: I feel embarrassed that my the people we didn't necessarily I didn't necessarily vote in
0: are actually doing something that I find so alien to the way that we've always been brought up and things that we believed in it's so disconcerting for youngsters when they're going to try and put food on the table where they might be doing two or three jobs and having to use food banks, etc. To be going down a line... I know we voted to leave. I personally didn't. But I accept what's to come. But you can't go down a route where the things you're asking for are not on the table. I love hard bargaining, but you can't, you can't do illegal things... Here we are fellas in Birmingham, city under COVID nineteen lockdown, at a time when the government has said it's willing to break the law, international law. What do you think about that?
3: The European Union are doing is over. Why, why shouldn't we do them? I'm not being funny but everyone knows it's not racism or anything else. It was all to do with immigration. And the amount of people now coming in at Cali and Dover and everything else, it's just stupid. Something's got to be done.
0: But you're not worried that the government signed a deal with the European Union and is now backtracking on it? No. No, not bothered at all. From a broader point of view, if the government doesn't obey international law, do you think that sends out a signal? Or are we taking it a bit too far to ask that question?
2: No, no, no. It's it, it's constant... Uh... It's one bad signal after the, after the next. I mean, the whole Dominic Cummins driving to the castle incident, which is, you know, put the whole country in disarray. A lot of people, very evidently, the week after, were no longer following rules because it's very hard. It, it's it's don't do what I do, do what I say, and it's it's ridiculous. People don't we don't work that way. You know, we need a government that we could trust, that we feel, that we can trust, and that we we can follow their trust by looking at what they're doing and follow their examples, but it's definitely not the case at the moment.
3: I've always voted Labour all my life. Never once have I voted Tories, but I actually think the Tories are doing a good job. They came in, they had Brexit to deal with, then the coronavirus to deal with, right? And I think think they're, from the heart, I think they're trying to do the right thing. And if they break a law, so what? We've been... We've done everything to the book over the years, and where has it got us? A lot of the countries in the world don't like us, no matter how many good things we do. So we might as well break the law and look after ourselves for a change, and that's the way I look at it. I suppose
0: people might say, though, that at a time when we're asking the good citizens of Birmingham to obey very strict regulations around COVID-19, people might think, well, if the government don't obey the rules, why should we?
3: I think I think it's a different that You know, it's a different scenario. Um, personally, the, the the laws they're asking us to obey now are for our own good, our own health. The laws that you're on about that they're gonna break, I, I think it's about time we did do something like this. Do you know what I mean? Because I'm sick to death of the EU. I'm sick to death of all the rules and regulations. If we do the right thing, we're still bad people anyway, so we might as well do the wrong thing and be bad people.
0: Now, madam, here we are in Birmingham, which has got some of the strictest COVID lockdown rules of anywhere in the country, and yet we have a government that says that it is willing to break the law. Do you think there's a contradiction there?
4: Uh, Just a little bit, yep.
0: Do you think that it will make any difference... In reality, on the ground, here in Birmingham, though, to whether people will obey the rules if, if the government says it's willing to break the law, it can find a justification for breaking the law?
4: I think we're already in a place where everyone's just completely and utterly lost faith in the government. So people are going to do what they want to do at this point. You know, if, if it is going to be double standards, why are people putting their lives on hold when uh, the government are happy to break all their own rules?
0: Do you think it it really could be taken as the as a wrong signal then by the public that people will be willing to perhaps ignore some of the lockdown regulations here?
4: Yeah, definitely. like I run a bar just down there, and we're being quite strict about it, sanitizing and taking contact details and all this sort of stuff. So the people I see day to day are being as sensible as they can, but it's more a lot of stuff I see online. everyone's very, very frustrated.
0: So, do you think that what ministers say and do does make a difference here on the ground in Birmingham?
4: Only from a negative point of view. They've just been so contradictory that everyone's fed up. Everyone's just tired of it all. And you know, if they're not going to take their own rules seriously, no one's going to bother listening to them.
0: Did you say that you run a bar by the way up the road? Yep. A signal to have a pint, isn't it? <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs>
0: Well, I should say that I had my own interpretation of the rule of six in that bar, but thankfully, the hangover has now worn off. You've been listening to the podcast of the Byline Times, the home of fearless, independent journalism. Please support our work by subscribing to our monthly newspaper. You'll get more details at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. My name's Adrian Goldberg. I'll see you again in a fortnight. Thanks for listening.